Welcome to Mulks TV Talk, the podcast where we take a loving, longing look at TV and tell you this week, we've gone from beauties to buff bods as The Bachelorette Australia kicked off on 10. With three dudes already gone and the bad boys identified, it comes down to the discernment of Sam Frost as to who she'll ultimately find love with. How 2015 is it that a woman can openly date 14 men who are all aware of it with the aim that they'll be slowly eliminated as Sam selects the one she would prefer to develop a deeper relationship with? Who says love is dead? Since the dawn of time, man has searched far and wide for the best things on TV. What to watch. How to watch. Who's watching what. Free to wear this, VPN that, plug in and listen to what other people think about what you are and are not watching. It's Mulks TV Talk, the podcast, with your host, Steve Mulk. Joining me this week, a broadcaster, a writer, a comedian and a man with the best manicured facial hair on Australian TV. He's anchored the project's desk while drawing a cock and balls on every script and captained his own team on Talking About Your Generation. He owned the mic at Triple J and Triple M and is known for his topical political stand-up. He now drives his own vanity desk project in the weekly, but always remembers his roots in the mansion and cash cab. He's straight out of Brighton. It's Australian TV royalty, Charlie Pickering. Wow. Wow. That is a comprehensive introduction. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go through point by point, but surely others have better <laughs> manicured facial hair than I do on TV. Like, or surely... In the, not in the modern like, age. Like, I, I don't know. Osher Ginsburg seems pretty seems pretty neat and tidy. I don't know. I think he, he does a good job, but maybe you're right. Maybe... But here's the thing. I, once a week, just before the show, mm. I have beard trimmers and I shave my beard. And other than that, I don't do anything to my face. I actually... The whole reason for the beard is I hate shaving. So I've just... <laughs> I've just... I do it as little as possible. And that's it. That is the great showbiz story of my well-manicured face. Breaking, you heard it here first, Mulks TV Talk. <laughs> Gosh. Well, I think Osha does okay. Charlie, thank you so much for, for joining us. All the way from New York, no less. Uh, yeah, I try to make it as difficult as possible for um, <laughs> for various podcasters to track me down. <laughs> and I like us to have as many technical difficulties as we can. Uh, but this is all gone. This is all gone very smoothly. This is uh, yes. this is the internet working for everyone. Well, hopefully everyone's joy, if nothing else, uh, for our for our amusement. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, Charlie, look, it is uh, from a week in TV's perspective. There's so much going on, um, but I think we should just knock through a little bit of news so that we can talk a whole lot more about you, if that's okay. Sure, no worries. Follow Mulk on Twitter at Mulk's TV Talk. But first, some news. Still on 10, they've drawn a long overdue line in the sand and declared Offspring will return in 2016 for its sixth season. Apart from the fact Nina Proudman's story seemed to wrap up in a neat little package at the end of season five, two of the key writers have announced they will not return to write the new season because they feel Nina's story is done. Fans can expect a brand new season with brand new hijinks, including a cliffhanger finale where Nina and Billy have to work out who shot Mr. Burns for blocking out the sun. (laughs) Did you ever get into uh, Offspring, Charlie, given it was uh, on your former alma mater? 
Yeah, do you know what? I, I, it, it, like, it passed me by, if you know what I mean. Like I, mm-hmm. I didn't get on board early and then I never caught up. And so I actually – and this is despite the fact like I've got very good friends that work on that show. Like Eddie Perfect it, it mm. has been in Made Mind for oh, probably 10 years or more. Like, and, and like I was so excited, you know, that he was – that he got that gig and, and I mm. – you know, I, I was always very, um, I don't know, interested in what, what was going on with the show, like how successful it was sure. as, as you are when you're at a network. But it's like, you know, you miss a few crucial episodes and you're like, I oh, look, I can't catch up. I've got too many things. That, like, But also it happened at a time when, to be honest, I think I was trying to do The Wire and mm. and maybe Walking Dead at the same time. Yep. But, you know, so I was just thoroughly committed from an episodic TV point of view. Um, yes. But, of course, whenever the stars of the show would come on the project to promote it, I would in some way appear as though I was an avid follower of the show and um, and I would I would share the emotional outpouring of Patrick's death, not knowing who Patrick really was. But I, I shared the emotion. <laughs> the, the important thing is that season five really became the year of zombie Patrick. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and that, you know. That's where my um, my Walking Dead experience came in very handy. <laughs> mm, that's right. Fair questions to Asher Ketty. So axe or baseball bat, which is your preferred uh, weapon of choice? Wow. It's about yeah, being prepared, that's, Yeah, I, 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 think, um, I think baseball bat, it's, it's less likely to get stuck in something. And, and let's mm. face it, repeated strike to the key. Um, yes. Although if, if if I don't know how into Walking Dead you are, but it's amazing. Like everyone develops kind of their favourite weapon, mm. and they become quite precise. Yes. So like the best I've seen, one of the characters has a samurai sword for a couple of Michonne. seasons. Yeah, and that is that's total business time. Like that is yeah. when it when it goes down apocalypse wise, mm. I will be I'll be swinging by the samurai sword shop in my neighbourhood. <laughs> Before Keeping before I head out shot. on the road, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I would make it my full-time job to know how to keep that thing razor sharp. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But but I reckon, you know, you would have a bit of time on your hands. Just yeah, okay. like, because you wouldn't <laughs> sleep anymore. You'd be too scared. So <laughs> all of those nighttime hours, plenty of time to sharpen your samurai sword. <laughs> plenty. Charlie, what are your earliest TV memories? Oh wow! Um, look, probably the the clearest TV memory I have was from I was about five, and the maybe oh maybe seven around there. But um, it was the final episode of Mash, like the goodbye, yes. farewell, and I'm in special. Mm. And my whole family had been quite into Mash, and and like I'd watched it a bit with my dad. I didn't get everything going on, but sometimes Hawkeye would be funny or get hit on the head mm. or whatever and you know it was enough for he'd wear a Hawaiian shirt yeah that's right um but I but I did even as a kid I got kind of the absurdity of it all like the the absurdity mm. of the premise which is it's quite beautiful um but my parents threw a, a party for the last episode of of MASH wow. and all their friends came around they all wore like they went to like Aussie disposals and and all wore like army fatigues and they made martinis Great. And 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 they all cried their 
eyes out at the end, which, you know, anyone that's gone back and watched that episode, you you will just continuously bawl your eyes out. Um, and so, it, weirdly enough, like, that's probably the earliest clear TV memory I've, I've got. Uh, and it really had an impact on me because I, I guess early on I, I kind of got the idea of, how TV can be unifying, like how you can have a national or international experience because of something special on TV. And it's sort of, it's one of the things that still excites me about television or that I still think is, um, is a little bit magic about TV in a way that a viral video I don't think achieves. And that is those, (laughs) those live moments that people can share on a massive scale. And, and we might not have them as often as we used to, but they're still culturally defining. I mean, even even recently, the fact that you know every the it, the, the spill the the you know the Malcolm Turnbull mm. challenge that that rated so highly, it meant that you know like a, a quarter or a third of the population were all watching the same thing at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And there, and there's something about that 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 I think is is still fascinating and very powerful. Is that not simply reflective of the fact, though, that we are still like the Roman horde, baying for blood and given the chance to see uh, that kind of, you know, gladiatorial exchange, we'll go and, and sit in the Colosseum, bring out the lions. We want to see it all. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I... I maybe, maybe that's part of us, but I think that... I think it was pretty specific to this... Uh, to this time, sort of the last mm-hmm. three governments, which have been a bit chaotic, and, and and I would say it's really been the first generation of professional politicians for whom their their entire career and entire professional life has been focused on politics, and a lot of them, well, almost all of them, all of the main players were student politicians that learned how to win elections at university and then have pursued that all their lives. And what they've all done, both sides of politics, everyone playing this game have forgotten the fact that they actually work for us and they're meant to be doing the governing yes. bit, not just the politics bit. And so, to be honest, I, I, I think that particularly this latest spill, I think that was the end of a very tumultuous few years, you know, that Tony Abbott yeah, was, yeah. was a very active part of. And I think part of everyone being so into it and and wanting to watch it, I, I, I do think that a major part of that was um, people wanted it done. And I think they were angry that yeah. just for so long, what can only be described as bullshit politics has ruled the day and there hasn't been an agenda. And 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 this isn't, um, this is not, Tony Abbott specific and people often make erroneous assumptions about what my politics actually are. Mm. But one thing I, I believe across the board, uh, politicians are not to be trusted and you have to be very careful investing hope and belief in politicians because, well, they're people who are trained to lie for a living and keep secrets yeah. for a living. So I, I think, you know, we should all be, relatively sceptical. And I think a little bit of the hope with Malcolm Turnbull's challenge, and once again, this has nothing to do with my own personal politics or anything like that or what I think of him, but I do think that people on both sides hope 
that he will behave like a grown-up. Do you know what I mean? Like he mm-hmm. won't just be doing this politics for politics sake game because I think we're all really over it. We're, we're looking for uh, a return to some more statesman-like politics, aren't we? Yeah, def- desperately. And, and, and I'd, the, the big question is, have this, has this last era of politics so damaged our perception and trust of politicians that that statesmanship will be a great challenge to achieve? Yeah. And, and that will be interesting to see. And that, there's a lot of pressure there on um, Malcolm Turnbull. And I think just as much, if not more, pressure on um, Bill Shorten Yes. Because Bill Shorten now has a much bigger challenge. But I think it's actually good for him because he has to have a vision and a plan now and he has to engage with Malcolm in a grown-up way. And whereas he running against Tony, he could have kept it small and just hit him on the head until he won. So, like, I think there's a big challenge for both sides. That statesmanship has to go both ways. And and I do believe that... um, the side that fails to do that will fail. So if, if, if either side continues to play cheap politics, I think they will get left behind, which is, you know, hopefully good for politics. This is a TV mm. podcast, though. That was a pretty <laughs> politics-y discussion. <laughs> but, but, the, but you know what is true? Like getting back to the TV of it is the bigger problem or what is a massive problem is our politicians are kind of celebrities and they're in the news yes. too much. And our news cycle and our news organisations are too reliant on the process stories, the the inside politics stories and the skullduggery and the scuttlebutt. Mm. And and so we all tune in to see one topple another as though it's a, a, you know, a a season finale of a a soap opera, Mm. forgetting that the, we shouldn't look at these people as celebrities or characters. They're, like they're real people and they've got a job to do and the media get that wrong. And as a result, the viewers, you know, uh, sort of watch it as though it's a TV show. Because for most people it is ultimately, yeah? Well, yeah, it, it, and that's true. It's, it's so removed from people's lives that it may as well be a movie. But... The sad thing is it's actually so connected to people's lives and mm. so important. So it's, you know, it's a um, – it, it, um, Barry Cassidy and I have talked a lot, you know, over, over a couple of beers bemoaning where um, politics is at but, but genuinely hopeful that, um, you know, with Malcolm may come a change and a different approach to the, um, mm. to the media and, and just to the job, I suppose. Look at you with your lefty politics working for the lefty ABC, hanging out with the lefty pinup boy. Yeah. Ah, oh, Charlie yeah. Pickering. Yeah, yeah. All of that, and at the same time, feeling optimistic that maybe Malcolm Turnbull, if he does it well, <laughs> could could improve politics. God, I'm so in the pocket of the left. It's it's um, <laughs> but it's it, it is funny. Like it, it happened a lot more on um, the project because there was so mm. little space to comment so little time and so much less opportunity for me personally to sort of build or, you know, to build and control the way ideas would be expressed. Sure. But, you know, the there is – it's funny. Like I, I used to – on the project, I would get criticised 
equally, I was told I was Gina Reinhart's right-wing lapdog mm. and that I was a complete socialist, you know, labour-loving lefty or, a, you know, a green... Like, Andrew Bolt describes me as part of the green left, which is bizarre. <laughs> it's just bizarre. And, and the fact is, it, you know, everyone's way off base with what my actual politics are. And it's an interesting thing that... Um, I think there would have been a lot of people that would have liked to criticise the weekly for being really left biased, mm. and I think they might have been quite disappointed that we that we weren't. You know, like we yeah, did yeah. A, we did a monologue criticising the Greens for trying to co-opt the Pope, you know, like to the Pope's yeah. message to support their views on climate change and how hypocritical hypocritical it was. We spent seven minutes pointing out how hypocritical that was, um, and you know, and we we had you know, a lot of goes at Bill Shorten and how uninspiring his performances have been. And and it, it's funny, though, what people will mistake is all satire should be critical of the government of the day, whoever mm-hmm. it is. That's, yeah. that's the rule. It, you should be critical of the most powerful people because your ridicule should hold them to account and you should always make them uncomfortable, whoever's in charge. So when it's a conservative government and they gave us an enormous amount to work with this year <laughs> by yes. being by being like genuinely incompetent like and that's not a partisan thing objectively this it was an, an incompetent government this year um that gave us lots of, to work with but people then perceive oh you're always attacking you know the the coalition it's like well when they're in power like when they run when they're the government that's who you, that's who you have to spend most of your time criticizing because they have the power and they're making the decisions yeah. and and if if and when there is a change of government then we will spend our time we will spend a, a, you know far more of our time criticizing whoever's in power then you know it, that's it's as simple it, it genuinely is as simple as that it's about keeping the bastards honest from an equal opportunity point of view isn't it yeah, and, and, and from a, the, the great position that we're a comedy show, so no one's meant to take us seriously and we're not claiming <laughs> to be powerful. And so we can get away with a lot more. You know, like we're not running for anything. We're, like, we're, not, we're not asking for anyone to respect us or believe in us or anything. Like, and, and, the, and the funny thing is, it is it's just true of comedy and it's, it, it's the same whether you're watching, like, I don't know, Louis or mm. you um, you go and watch just good stand-up, you know, like, oh, I mean, Tom Gleason, you, you watch him do stand-up or, um, or, you know, the really good shows like, you know, like Colbert or Jon Stewart. And the biggest laughs are the jokes that are most true. You know, like that, that mm. whole thing of, oh, it's funny because it's true. It's like, yeah, that's, that's actually where the best yeah. comedy is. It's, it's, it's the biggest laughs you get are when you find the funny way to point out the, the truth of the situation. And the great thing about politics is that's often hiding behind walls of bullshit that you have to scrape off before you get there. <laughs> but that's, you know, the funny thing to me is that to when you get it right, all you're actually doing is pointing out what's really going on. And, you know, that's, that to me is a pretty funny thing. The Weekly uh, has recently finished up on the ABC, but we did get some really great news that not only are we getting a, a special that I think has been called The Yearly, uh, but that you're also coming back for season two. Now, this is 
excellent because I, I will say unabashedly a huge fan of the weekly. I think that the entire team uh, just did a spectacular job. And the thing that probably buoyed me the most was the recognition, if we can call it that, that to make a show like the weekly, they need people to write stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. I, I had a number of, I had a number of people throughout the series sort of email me or give me a call or whatever that said they really liked that it was clearly a, a writer-driven comedy show. Mm. You know, like, and weirdly enough, they've just become so rare on TV. You know, like, yes. there are lots of great comedy writers in Australia, but they work on an ever-diminishing number of TV shows. And so they also mm. work, you know, they also work on, you know, shows like The Project, which aren't, aren't comedy, you know, and the writing done for that is... Like, that's a pretty thankless task, some of the comedy writing that goes on for a show like that, because so little of the comedy ever gets to air. Um, but we have, you know, with the weekly, like, I think we've got a freakish team of writers, and, and I was very lucky that um, I made a list of all the people that I wanted to do the show, and, <laughs> and we went after them one by one, and they all said yes. And the other thing that happens with a writer's room is you don't know what the chemistry of the room is going to be like. You don't, you know, you don't sure. know how everyone's going to get along and what the attitude's going to be. But it genuinely was like, it was perfect. The chemistry was perfect. The, um, no one was precious. Like if if their idea didn't get didn't get up or a joke got cut, even if it got cut on the floor as we were recording it, you know, we said that's not right. You know, like threw a joke yeah, away yeah. or whatever. Everyone in that room was professional enough to have the attitude of whatever makes the show funnier is what mm. we do. Um, but the other way, like going back the other way, because I'm a comedian and a writer and I've written for shows before, I felt that it was my responsibility to create an environment where people felt like they could go for whatever ideas they wanted to and yep. pitch in whatever they wanted and take big risks and know that, I would have their back. I would, you know, if they wanted to take a big risk with an idea, I would take it on air and I would sell it 100%. Or I would get out of their way to allow them to create the thing that they wanted to create. Um, and I think from a writing point of view, I, I think that made the whole, the whole thing work really well. And there was a great satisfaction about what we wrote and, and how we went about it. And, you know, I, I say that uh, it it shouldn't be interpreted that I'm detached from the writer's room in any way. Like I am in the writer's room. I'm one of the writers, you mm. know, with everyone. But I um, I don't, I just consider myself just another one of the writers on the show, if that makes sense. Because it's, yeah, yeah. it's a complete team, team effort and no one is more important than anyone else. Uh, unless, of course, you're listening to this and you're one of the writers who, in trying to persuade to come back to season two, I said you were the most important writer. So there's about two or three of you. But So I meant that with you guys. But, yeah, <laughs> everyone's equal except for you three who are the best individual ones. Well, the, the, out, the outcome for for you or for us as viewers but for you guys as creatives meant that we got some incredible segments across the the season i mean uh, th there were so many high points but a couple that stand out I, I reflect uh the the song that i think casey Benetto and cal wilson were involved in uh yeah. that was before oh so great the andy rape song yeah that's that's probably I, I, like i'll say that's probably my proudest 
um, moment for the series. And proud for a number of reasons. A, it's just like, it's a pretty strong message. And I thought it was delivered. It looked good and it sounded great. Mm-hmm. And Casey's music yes. was terrific. And Cal, Cal it was, it was so dedicated to writing that. But I'm really proud. Like that literally started with a conversation that Cal and I had in like week three of the show. Just going, how, how lame is it that police will come out and say that women have to mind how they behave, but they never end the press conference with a reminder that men shouldn't rape. Why? Mm. And, and we were just talking about it going like, what's the funniest way? How can we communicate that idea in a funny way? And by the end of the conversation, it was, we're going to do Don't Rape the Musical. So we're just <laughs> going to dress up the message. So it's like, so it's not unpalatable. So you can deliver it. And, and it, it should be a song that everyone sings along to. And, and it should like, you know, we need to do that. It has to be that commonplace that it's a hit. And and I think I think Cal was surprised that I then entirely committed the show to making it. You know, mm-hmm. like it, I, I've got to say, in any other production I've ever worked on, they would have said, "Well, obviously we can't do that. Obviously, you can't sing a song about rape." And so. But we but, just so it, whereas, whereas in our yeah, whereas in our environment, my idea was, well, no, those ideas that scare you, are the, they're the good ones. Like mm. they're the ones that you you should run with, and you know, just the genuine sense of pride when that went to air, and the satisfaction, you know, for Cal, who's an, just an outstanding comedian, a great writer, a, just an awesome person mm. to work with. Um, for for her to have that pride as well and for her to sort of, you know, have a piece of the show for the season that was entirely her baby that she shepherded through and she got to work with amazing, like, you know, it wasn't just Casey Bonetto. Miranda Tapsell was yes. seeing the lead with Angie Hart and Geraldine mm. Quinn. It sounded amazing. And look, at we yes. got dancers dressed like the Temptations. Like, you know, <laughs> everything about it was the way that you'd want it to be. It was a Motown song that made it like anyway. That was Casey's touch was making it Motown. And it, anyway, and so I don't know the the satisfaction of doing that, and the mm. satisfaction of more than anything creating an environment where it's expected now that that's the sort yes. of stuff that will happen. That's yes. that's like that's a that's a really great that's a great like I don't know as far as work satisfaction goes. That's that's what I've got great pride about. And, you know, that's, that's myself and Chris Walker, who's um, the other uh, EP of the show. Mm. Um, it's the, you know, that's that's his achievement as much as mine, as much as Jared McCulloch, the head writer, and, um, and every, you know, the entire culture of the whole team. But, you know, we've managed to make a workplace where those ideas are not just welcome, but they're the ones that we are proudest of. Yeah, well, you've had some great ideas that have come to our screen. You've also had the chance to speak to, I would have to say, the most diverse array of guests from an interview point of view this season than I think I've seen anybody any on any other show. Um, yeah, well, maybe, look, first of all, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like every part of this show is something that I'm, I'm very passionate about, and I'm, I am very passionate about interviews uh, on television. And I, I actually think that whilst there are more and more interviews on television, I think fewer and fewer of them um, kind of deserve to be there, if, or or are interesting mm. enough, or 
or set themselves apart from shit you could just watch on YouTube anyway. Or podcast. Um, or podcast, yeah. That's it. Well, to be honest, if you want real conversation, you know, podcasts are leading. And it's funny, like, part of my attitude has been, well, <laughs> how can we do podcasts on TV? Do you know what I mean? Like, And <laughs> yes. I know that sounds crazy, but, like, the well, they used to. Like, Clive James used to do interviews that were basically like podcasts are now. You know, yeah. on his, um, you know, uh, late night Clive or, you know, like the stuff that he would do in England. Um, and, you know, he was blessed to have guests like Peter Cook and Barry Humphrey. Mm. But he also just sat there and had an intelligent conversation for an hour and that was it. And it's amazing how effective that is on podcasts, but TV seems to have forgotten it. Yeah. Um, but with, you know, what we tried to do with our show was... We just had to really, really, really want to speak to every single person that came on. You know, there were like yep. we just we didn't never wanted to have an interview where we weren't passionate, or we didn't weren't just having them on because they were selling something. That was the other thing. We went after people who weren't selling something. They weren't. Yes. They didn't have a tour planned. You know, um, former disability commissioner Graham Innes. Yes, he was just actually on top of my list at the start of the season, and I just said. I think he's an incredible guy yeah. and I love, like I've, I've met him a couple of times. He spoke so well at Stella Young's funeral mm. and I was just like, that's the kind of person you should interview on a show and not because it's, and that's the thing, not because it's worthy or it's because it's for a good cause. It's because it's really good fucking television. Like, yes. and, 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 you know, all of, all of the guests to me were, were candidates for outstanding television and there were people you'd never heard of with it. Um, the death talker who, you know, a palliative care nurse about, about the end of life. And that, and that came from a, a conversation that we had in the office that I, I felt like when, you know, anyone having a baby reads 50 books on it, you know, yeah. and, and over obsesses about the detail of having a baby, but no one thinks about the end of their life until they're in it and they can't control it. And so we tried to find someone that we could speak to about that. And, and, you know, that's, that's a relatively uncomfortable conversation, but it was good television, you know? Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, just, you know, blessed with some amazing, like, I guess you'd say celebrities, but it's funny. Like, I, I don't think I would have someone on cause they were a celebrity. Like I, like Amy Poehler is, is one of the best comedians in the world. And Jeffrey mm. Tambor is one of the finest actors like of this and any generation, you know, um, yep. Hugh Jackman is like a super famous guy, but he is also, <laughs> he is also, he is an amazing actor. We take it for granted. He is an amazing actor and he, what he's achieved in his career is, is spectacular. And he's done it by working really, really hard. And I think we take that for granted because he's the famous guy, the famous yeah. guy, you know? So, you know, across this series, and then, yeah, we had a theoretical physicist and an astrophysicist. That's important to yeah. have two different types of physicists. Just um, casually. Um, but, but to be honest, the, the philosophy um, on selecting guests, like I'm, I'm, I'm actually very honest about the influences on what I do and on this show. Yes. And I, I have to say that it, all you have to do is look at the guest roster that Stephen Colbert and John Stewart had through their shows over the last 10 years and you'll see that it, it's the most diverse group of people like and to me 
their interviews were were a real highlight of what they did, and and they really like they kind of taught me a lesson that as fascinating people are fascinating to talk to. They don't have to, you know, it's often better if no one in the audience has heard of them before, you know, yes. like then everyone's discovering it together. Um, so you know, I, I I was actually reading an article recently. Uh, it was in like a literary review journal or something about how the book business in uh, New York is is where a lot of the publishers, you know, big publishers are based. They're actually yes. nervous because they've said that with the departure of John Stewart and Stephen Colbert from Late Night, who's going to talk to authors on TV now? Oh, you know, like, and, and they're going from an industry point of view, like they've lost one of the great forums where they've been able to communicate their work. And, yeah. you know, to me, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, that, uh, that those shows became important to the, like the, the health of the publishing industry because they talked to a diverse group of people, you know, and, and as a result, they just kept getting more and more wonderful guests on their shows. Yeah. It's, it's still early days. Uh, but how do you think Stephen Colbert has gone in his transition from The Report to now The Late Show? I think it's been pretty amazing. I, I think it's been truly uh, impressive. I, I listened to a lot to his podcast that he did leading up to doing yes. the show. Yes. And that was a great insight into, I mean, his work ethic, but also just his passionate belief in in quality. You mm. know, just like like in craft and quality and being excellent and taking things like the architecture of the theater that you film in seriously, you know, like, yep. like knowing that they all contribute to the quality of something. And, and, you know, it, it's an amazing thing to watch someone, uh, I, I guess be, be given the opportunity and budget to build something that, that, will almost certainly be the biggest thing they do and will be their legacy, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, you know, you would say that the Colbert Rapport was one of the greatest works of satire probably, probably yeah. ever over a 10-year period. But this will become what defines Stephen Colbert and to see him go mm-hmm. about building it in a meticulous way and then really being dedicated to high standards and quality, it, it, it's really impressive. And I think... I think you would say that compared to the other offerings of, say, Kimmel and Fallon, which are so now driven towards YouTube clips, you know, like creating moments that will yes. go onto YouTube, whilst a lot of the interviews and, and segments that Colbert has done so far uh, have, have done very well on YouTube, he is very much in the business of making a good one-hour TV show to watch. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, and I, you know, I, I think he believes in the craft of making a one-hour show and the network support that. And and not to put too fine a point on it, he is kind of the the guy that TV needed to remind everyone that an hour of TV is a special thing to watch, you know, if you if you sit down and do it. And, you yep. know, and, and, and I think it will serve him well and I think he will have longevity because of it. And with a bit of luck, he might push other shows to be a bit more committed to that level of, you know, like believing in TV, not just that TV is like a TV is a big YouTube clip, if you know what I mean. 
Very much so, Charlie. I believe very firmly in TV. Um, that said, in all of its forms too. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think the other way, that anyone making shows has to be completely uh, platform agnostic and just mm. want their stuff to go as far as possible. In the same way that, like, you hear Dave Grohl talk about the internet and what it's done to music, and he's like, I don't care. I just want the most people listening to my songs. Mm. And that's, you know, if you believe in what you do, yeah, you, you must want that as well. Like, you must just want, however people get their hands on it, you know, you, you want them, you just want them to see it. And that's kind of a good thing about being at the ABC is, you know, there's no more money for me to make from more people watching it on YouTube or anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they're, like, I yes. know what I'm getting paid to make this show. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a government wage, and <laughs> but like, but that's what I make for this show. And so once it's made, I just want as many people as possible to see it. And you know, one thing I love about iView, which I, you know, in the in the launch of Netflix and Stan and what's the other one? Presto. Presto. Like, you know, like they're they're all great, but. What you get for free on iView is mm. amazing. Like, like the, you know, that and that service has been going for years and years. And I, I, it's funny. I don't think the ABC gets enough credit for what amazing work they've done, you know, in the digital space. And, you know, that's that's one thing I enjoy every week is getting, you know, I get the, the ratings of us going to air and then I get the catch-up numbers and I get the ABC2 number and then I mm. get the iView number. And then get the regionals. And so that's the other great thing about the ABC is all I care about is the, the total number of people watching the show each week. Do, yes. do you know what I mean? Across um, all the platforms. Yeah, across across all of them. Um, as opposed to that sort of that panicked commercial looking at the numbers at 9.15 the following morning and wondering yeah. if we've all still got jobs. Um I, I, I like at the end of you know at the end of the week and telling all the numbers up to to seeing what the real number is and how many people watch it and know that that I'm not trying to sell ad space on the show or you know I'm just trying to make a show that people want to watch. It's an incredibly myopic situation that we now find ourselves in, and I offer I'm part of the problem. My website publishes the overnights every day, uh, but that. From a programming point of view, the smart networks, and I'll say it that way, do account for the fact that a show doesn't just have life in its original aired time slot. There are opportunities for repeats across the week, you know, in the other channels or other times. There's their catch-up service, and we talk, you know, we talk about the weekly uh, and iView. iView gets it and it has a great run. There's the ABC2 repeat. There's the, those sorts of things and, and multiple opportunities to fit that in so that in a week's time, we get to say, how did the show go? It's not yeah. Thursday morning, how did the show go? Well, that's, that's a really, that's a bad way to look at it. However, the media, we, us, the problem, uh, that we're going, hey, guys, here's the overnights. And people go, oh, this show can't have been any good because only 116 people watched it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it in some context. Yeah, 116 people watched it, but it was also up against this and this and this, and they only had 117 uh, and then that's just this first airing. Let's talk again in a week's time when we know what the catch-up figures are, the people that recorded it to watch. And then when 
uh, and if the ABC want to tell us what the iView numbers are, because that becomes the missing piece now for consumers, for us, to be able to see, you know, what is the performance of a show, you know, Plus yeah. 7 are doing their thing, 10 play, iView. We've long had promised by Oztam, the ratings people, to say, yeah, yeah, we'll give you catch-up numbers. For two two years, we've been waiting on this. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think that the... More broadly, I think the way that ratings are done are flawed in a number of, you know, like in a mm. number of ways. And by that, that, this isn't me trying to excuse ratings. Like we, no, we I understand. Met, we met all of our, you know, all of the benchmarks we had to hit. We met, and you know, we, I think the slot was up a hundred thousand on the previous year, and I think our catch-up number by around ep six was like it was about one point four million nationwide. Yep. You know, um, yes, which consistently. Is, you know, so. But what I will say is there's enough anecdotal evidence that, you know, the people that set up the Oztown boxes have a bias towards commercial and not ABC viewers. Yep. You know, that because it's the commercial networks that are paying for it. Um, yep. Well, 7, and, 9, and 10 own Oztown. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, we never, we never talk back on, like, you know, 774 in Melbourne or 702 in Sydney talks about it. You always get people ringing up going, yeah, they came to my house and they asked me, what do I watch? And I said, oh, I'm mainly the ABC. And they said, oh, then we're not going to install it. You know, and that's not, like, that's that's completely anecdotal and maybe it's only three people yeah. that, that I've heard ring up the stations. But the fact is, it's not, it's not actually an exact science. It's still so imperfect. And even, like, I remember making the mansion back on the Comedy Channel mm. and our audience was so small that, like, if... Someone's aunt was sick, then it would look like no one watched our show. Like you know, like we needed an individual house to turn on the machine, and like, it, like I'm not saying I'm not saying any more people were watching than that family with a sick aunt. But what I am saying is like it's not a scientific representation, particularly in a fractured, you know, digital yeah. with a fractured oh, digital, God, yes. digital signal, you know. But I, I think it will get to the point. It will get to the point where, and and. And this is not very far away, mm. but everyone's TV is just plugged into the NBN. Like it's all actually a form of streaming. Yes. And when that happens, you'll actually be able to get exact viewing numbers because it'll yes. all be logged. And and you know, I would I would hope that everyone is just open about that because that would be a far more honest system. You know, yeah. that's that's maybe a few years away, but I, I think it's um. I, I would welcome it, to be honest. Even it's if it's hard. Closer than you think. <laughs> yeah, that's well, yeah. right. Yeah, it's it's not the, the technology is basically there. We just you know we need better pipes to get the information, and you know a, a few a few changes to the TVs. But even, you know like TVs now have like Roku installed, and you know like mm. there there are lots of there are lots of TVs that are being built for that purpose. Oh, and there's two ways to to look at that. Yes, so we need smarter TVs to cope with some of this and and to do away with the terrestrial broadcast antenna signal. Um, We need better internets. People who listen to the the show for a long time know that I will rail heavily uh, towards let's get us our fibre to the home that will just revolutionise the things that we do. Um, But then also at the end of this year, this calendar year, 2015, the year of our Lord, um, we're getting... Uh, Channel 7 will be streaming their terrestrial broadcast signal online. So people will be able to go to website, click on link, and there's Channel 7 or 7.2 or 7Mate 
at 7.30 at night showing exactly what's on their big flat panel on the wall. Yeah, and, and that, you know, to be honest, given that it's free to wear, I have no idea why that hasn't happened sooner. Like, I genuinely have no idea why why that wasn't done immediately, like, as soon as live streaming were possible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, it doesn't make sense to me. If you're pumping the thing out into the air anyway, why wouldn't you pump it out on the internet? As well. I think it's a reach rule thing, which is what is currently being railed against by various owners of various media organisations, because this conceivably now means that 100% of the Australian population can watch Channel 7. And in particularly yeah. regional areas, they've only been able to get, you know, Prime 7 or, or Regional 7 or those sorts of things. And that is, of course, a problem for the regional networks who are then under the pump, because it means that people go, well, why would I want to wait and watch delayed show in my time zone when I can watch the X factor now because it's on in Sydney Uh, and and to hell with your local advertising and badly voiced jingles. um, (laughs) I'm going to watch the latest Purina ad. Yeah. But that's, you know, that then becomes beholden on those more local broadcasters to find ways to make local content more appealing, you know? Oh, sure. But they threw their lot in when they basically signed up, um, you know, regional output deals effectively where they're meeting their requirement, their legislative requirement of delivering local news and they don't do a whole lot more. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I think that's definitely true. And But once again, uh, I'll tell you who's not worried about that is the ABC who yes. uh, is so beloved in the country. You know, like... The, the way the ABC services regional Australia is, is really impressive and it's very, very valued. And it's one Spot of the on, things Spot on, because that, they invest in it, right? Yeah, they, they invest in it and they they have the attitude that just because it's not, you know, just because it's not selling ads for a lounge discount or a Bing Lee or something in, you know, in Sydney, mm. Western Sydney, it's still worth doing. Uh, yeah. It's still important. And it's funny, like, you know, we Tom Gleeson, who grew up in Gunnedah, and did some great stuff like his story on the Shinwa mine. Yes, um, yes. Like, and that was, you know, in in a lot of ways. And Tom and I talked about it. It's it's great to represent regional issues, and they love it. Like they really appreciate it. Like you know, yeah. like he, he, you know, I'm sure he can do a very lucrative regional stand up tour, and people will, <laughs> you know, like will love the <laughs> yes. fact that he took the piss out of the miners that were going to screw the farmers, you know, and I, I just yeah. reckon there's, um, there is a huge appetite there. And, and one of the things I like about, about being at the ABC is you're almost encouraged to tell those stories rather than told that you have to do what's going to appeal to Western Sydney. What, what a number of networks I've heard referred to as the corridor of joy which wow. is which is sort of from Sydney out to Parramatta, and just like if you can win that, well, that's you've won the ratings, and like and that's you know to me that's fine. They're they're just in a different business, Do you know, like like that, that's yes. um, and that's sort of what I came to learn having you know worked at a few different places. Is like, I don't know, TV is kind of like a railroad. You know, some people are shipping passengers, some people are shipping freight. There are lots of people in different businesses that use the railroad. And yes, and I kind of think TV's the TV's the same. Like some people want to just tell jokes, some people want to make people cry, some people just want to sell coke, and 
some people want to, you know, make things that last and or art or whatever it is, you know, like, and so people are going to use TV, you know, have different approaches to the TV and they're all great and they're all welcome. And the thing is, I don't want anyone to think that I have like any ill will towards my commercial TV experience. Like I really enjoyed it. I, I look forward to one day, you know, if the project were right and the network were right to work in commercial TV. But, um, you know, for the time being there, there's a lot of things about the ABC that I really, you know, that I just really enjoy. And and top of the list is, is the freedom to make the show the the way we want to make it. Yeah. And just for any of the daily telegraphs, um, uh, showbiz reporters that are listening, Charlie didn't mean he would return to the project on 10. He just (laughs) meant, a project should it be right though he's not ruling out the project uh if that indeed is the opportunity yeah no that's exactly just right just mention mox tv too yeah it's um you know but but uh, i would say that um Waleed's outstanding performance has meant that that i'm not sure there's yeah. that much space back at that back at that desk for me <laughs> anyway Oh, come on, Charlie. I mean, if, if they've still got room for Steve Price, there's room for Yeah, I think Steve and I offer very different things to the audience. <laughs> um. <laughs> you talk about being beholden to certain ideals and principles and masters. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you guys are like the other side of the planet to each other. Yeah, but it's funny. We are and we're not. Like, um, we see things very differently. And we, I think we speak speak to different sure. audiences. What I love about Steve is uh, top, like the top line is he is an entertainer. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, and people often yeah. make the mistake. Like he gets the way show business works, and he he understood very early, and I understood very early, and it even took the producers at the project to cotton on that he and I fighting is great. Like it's entertaining. You know, like, like, yeah. People can hate me, and they can hate Steve, and they can love me, and they can love Steve, and they can cheer, and they can boo, but they're into it. You know, like, like they're they're passionately watching it, and so um, Steve and I got that early on, and we like Steve and I are great mates. You know, like we hang out. You know, yeah. really enjoy each other's company. I'm a great admirer of his work, but I, you know, we just have very different ideas about the way the world should be. You know. After uh, yeah, after a couple of recent questions in, in an interview recently, though, I'm not sure that Carrie is on his Christmas card list this oh, year. Oh wow, maybe. wow! I haven't spot. I, I don't know anything about that, but um, but that's wow. You know, I mean, that's a long term relationship. There, that's that's what's that? That's six yeah. or seven years now. So six years, six and a half years. Yeah, now. I look. It, it's a passing. I'm sure it's just this year she won't be on the Christmas card list. It'll it, she'll be back <laughs> on it next year. Yeah. I'm sure. How do you like to consume your TV now, Charlie? Uh, I, I'm very much on demand just mm-hmm. because uh, I, I'm never at home with time to watch the shows when they're going to wear when I, you know, when I want to watch them. So sure, but, yeah, but yeah. I, I'm very much, I also binge like I do, I pick a show and I work through it. Or I've got about two or three shows on the go at any one time that I'm that I'm working through, um, and yes. then I also like that I also stay across the. Well, you know, I have to just watch so much news for work. <laughs> like I watch so much news, yes. um, but that's that's work. That's almost not my viewing. Um, and then you know the the stuff I watch for joy, but it's also I guess sort of 
you know, watching things like Colbert's new show or, you know, yeah. um, John Stewart or John Oliver and, and, you know, sort of, and Charlie Brooker in the, in the UK, I watch, I watch as well. Yes. Um, because just to sort of see, I don't know where it's at, like, you know, where, you know, where, what the best in the world are doing, if you know what I mean, and, and sort of what the, what the mm. benchmarks are. And, you know, a lot of people will say, like, and I'm very honest, like, well, what I find very surprising is the number of people that made comparisons to John Oliver um, with our show, whereas yes. I think the format is, like, there's an interview in the middle of it, there's, like, correspondence. You know, like, the, like the format of the show is actually yeah, yeah. it's actually very different to that. It's, I guess it's more like a, a Jon Stewart or it's more of a Tonight Show, you know, like newsy Tonight Show sort of thing. But I think that just means that, talking about the different way that people receive their content, I think that just means people watch the monologue on YouTube and go, oh, if that's all the mm. show is, then that looks like something else. Do you know what I mean, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind you, John Oliver doesn't have a guy, uh, you know, a balding red-headed uh, you know, guy in a large cup yeah. chair <laughs> that moves. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're pushing our own envelopes. Um that's so sad. My aunt do love it, the final episode where Tom's in his giant cup spinning around in circles and he calls out, look, I'm doing satire. I just, it's one of the highlights of my work. But that's another one. Like that's another example. Like the, the teacup, like the, his cup, like the cup on wheels, that was having beers, after, like having beers after the show when he first started to launch Hard Chat. And we just had a few beers and yes. I said, I reckon by the end of the season you should have a giant mug that you drive into the studio. And he just thought it was brilliant. <laughs> and and then there's the moment of realisation we, we had, which is like, well, there is no one here to tell us we can't do that. So we so we then oh. talked to the props department and we built it. Like, And it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it's joyous for all of us because we've all worked in so many different situations. But just working on a show where, like, we... we it's, it feels like the kids are in charge, if that makes sense. Like we go, hey, that'd be funny. Oh, let's yeah. just do that thing, you know. Oh, and it probably wasn't the weirdest request that ABC nah, Pops have ever got. Nah. I reckon I was I was only slightly surprised he didn't say, oh, I've already got one from, from when we made Australia, you're standing in it or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, how good was that? And just to quickly reflect – on uh, the Charlie Brooker thing, you'd be right across uh, the what's recently gone on around allegations around David Cameron uh, and yeah. the fact that Charlie Brooker in the first series of Black Mirror predicted this. Yeah, and then had to hit Twitter saying, I had no idea. Like he had to hit Twitter going, I just, I just made it up. Yes. It was fiction. I completely, like I had no idea. Yeah, that's, that's probably the weirdest political story for this year. Um, and, yeah, and it's funny, easily. like, there's lots of obvious jokes, but to me... And that's in a year with Donald Trump running yeah. to be the candidate for the Republicans. Yeah, and, and our Prime Minister repeatedly eating onions and then getting fired. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's been a pretty special year. Um, but but to me, I, what I think is very funny, is, well, not very funny, but the irony... Look, everyone makes mistakes when they're young, and, you know, that's a pretty weird one to make. <laughs> But that, but he's, you know, that's it's a young, stupid thing to do. But he is a prime minister that, you know, after the yeah. after the riots, he wanted any kid that got involved in the riots, sixteen year olds, to be prosecuted as adults. So 
there's a real message that if you can make mistakes when you're young, if you're rich and white, but if you're neither of those things, then you don't have that luxury, you know. And I, and I, I like at least as a result of pig gate <laughs> that that we're having at least that conversation that you know the same standards should apply to everyone, you know, and 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 yes, it should apply to the prime minister as much as some some kid in Hackney. Um, so you know that's you know that's mm-hmm. that's a pretty serious take on it but that's kind of what i'm feeling about it today (laughs) (laughs) charlie i've taken up a lot of your time i won't keep you on much longer i did have a couple of quick questions if i may what are the series or the tv shows that you are committing to at the moment um i'm committing to uh game of thrones the most recent season Mm. i sort of wait for them all to build up like I kind of wait for seasons to finish before I go in. So I'm doing the last Game of Thrones. Uh, Show me a hero, the new um, David Simon. Yes. Um, yep. And and then I'm going to get back into The Walking Dead. I didn't watch any of the last season, so I've got I've got a couple of seasons to catch up on. So that's sort of where right. I'm at. Where I'm at on that. But there's so much good stuff. There's just so much good stuff coming out. Um, did Did you watch Better Call Yeah, Saul? I. I, I polished that off almost in a night. Like I just couldn't stop yes. watching it. I, I, I just thought it was such perfectly told storytelling. And I'm, and I'm a massive mm. Bob Odenkirk fan from like Mr. Show days. Yep. And, like I'm, a, I'm just a huge yep. fan. He has an amazing work ethic as a human being and a great temperament. And he's super funny, but he's a really good person. So I just love seeing him have the kind of success that, that he's having with that. Like I, I think it's amazing. Um, so yeah, they're pro- that's probably what's front of mind. Oh, and the Nick, the other one is the Nick. Have you watched? Oh, yeah, nice. That's, yeah, that's yeah. special. That's some special TV. God, there's some good TV. Man. We are in well and truly, pardon me, well and truly a golden oh, yeah, age, aren't absolutely. We? And you know, even stuff that not everyone gets into, like I watched Marco Polo, the Netflix series that the Weinstein brothers, yeah, made, yeah. and it was amazing. Like it was amazing. It's very yeah. good. I thought it was just. Like magic, you know. Like not everyone dug it, but the money that they've poured yeah. into those shows—it's great. And, and there's there's a sense that you know it feels like one layer of gatekeepers has been removed, and it's it's creative yeah. people getting a director a more direct path to the audience, and I and I really like that. Yeah. If you're after another Netflix binge when you have the the free space, Narcos is really good. Oh yeah, no, I'm very I'm very keen to watch that. I'm very very keen. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way I can pitch it is House of Cards. Yeah, but good. With and everyone's been calling out for that. Everyone has been calling out for that because <laughs> there wasn't nah. enough drugs in the actual nah. House of Cards. Nowhere near enough. Not since season one. Um, not since season one. <laughs> we had some big substance abuse issues in season season one. But um, yeah, no, that will be that. That's definitely high on the list too. But I've got to, you know, you can only do so many at once. Charlie Pickering, thank you so much. Mark's really TV really Talk, the podcast. How can people contact you or follow you in an interview? Oh, I guess, like, I've got an official page on Facebook, um, and there's the weekly page on Facebook, uh, and also just at Charlie Pick is my Twitter handle. That is the best way to keep in touch with me and what I'm thinking on a minute to minute basis. <laughs> 
Excellent. This is uh, another Mogs TV Talk podcast made again for Decider TV, a very brand new thing that I am doing. Uh, make sure you swing by DeciderTV.com to find out what's doing. This week, in fact, there's a conversation, uh, an article that's been written by me, oh, fancy, uh, about fast tracking and is it uh, Australian TV's next big lie? Tell me what you think. It's, it's quite possibly true. I think it is. Um, so make sure you check that out. Also go to Facebook and Instagram. There's Decider TV on both of those. I'm uh, Mox TV Talk on Twitter. You can absolutely follow me and Decider TV as well. New episodes of Mox TV Talk, the podcast, are out on Tuesdays. So make sure you subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And please do leave a sweet review. Tune in next week when you'll hear Charlie Pickering say, Thanks for this. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> <laughs>